Hello, welcome to This Week in the Atlantic Coast Conference, the podcast for allsportsdiscussion.com. This is Jeff, one of your podcast co-hosts, and you can follow me on Twitter at Talkin, T-A-L-K-I-N, A-C-C Sports. The podcast moderator is Matthew, and you can follow him at ASD underscore Hokie Smash. I'm going to turn it over to Matthew now as we begin the podcast. And I see our guest, uh, Chaz, here. We're going to give it just a second for Matthew to join, Chaz. No problem. All right. As we wait for Matthew to join us, uh, we can go over a little bit of uh, recent goings-on in ACC sports this week. Uh, Florida State made it to the finals of the women's softball tournament uh, facing Oklahoma and uh, game effort by the Seminoles, but they ran into an absolute buzz saw down there at Oklahoma, uh, lost in the championship series, but uh, a great tournament for the Florida State Seminoles. Uh, today, we had uh, Virginia advancing to the College World Series as they took out Duke 2-1 uh, to one in that series. Uh, great comeback by Virginia. They're really tough at home. Uh, they're a real threat in Omaha. Uh, I think they scored 26 runs or something like that the last two games. Uh, they're going to be really tough out. <clears throat> also advancing was Wake Forest uh, against, hey, Matthew, um, just giving a little overview of the baseball tournament. And we're talking about Wake Forest. They advanced today against Alabama, the number 16 seed. And all I'm going to say about that is Wake Forest looked like they were having batting practice against the Alabama pitching. I mean, this is a quality SEC team. And Wake Forest just absolutely destroyed their pitching staff. I think they hit nine home runs, scored 22 runs. And, I mean, they were just flying out of the yard uh, I think there's a reason they got the nickname now Rake Forest, and that's the number one team in the country, and they are an absolute threat to win it all. So two great chances uh, for the ACC to really make some noise in Omaha. All right, Matthew, I'm going to turn it over to you now as we introduce our guest who we have online. Boy, we're really happy this week. We're on a we're returning from a two-week hiatus. I'm here in Fargo, North Dakota, and we – this is the longest-running independent ACC podcast in the country. This is the All Sports Discussion ACC podcast. You can follow the site Twitter account at at All Sports DACC. Again, that's at All Sports DACC. The website is allsportsdiscussion.com. You can follow Jeff on Twitter at at Talkin ACC Sports. You can follow me, the podcast moderator, on Twitter. My name is Matthew. You can follow me on Twitter at at ASD underscore Hokie Smash. And let me tell you, it's just we we always love having these grassroots folks come back to our podcast. And Chaz Rich has been a friend of our podcast for several years for several years now. He is the creator and owner of Pit Blather, which is a blog that focuses on the University of Pittsburgh 
athletics. He is a freelance writer and editor. You can follow Chaz on Twitter at at ChazRich27. That's at C-H-A-S-R-I-C-H-27. And as I said, he blogs quite a bit about Pittsburgh athletics. Chaz, welcome back to the show. Before we start, tell us, our listeners, anything that you want about about yourself. The floor is yours. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on again. Always a good time to be here. Uh, nothing in particular to plug. I'm hoping to actually get the site fixed, repaired, and ready to run again. It's been a little fallow for a while, but uh, and part of it is just simply being lazy about with Twitter. But given the state of Twitter, I really need to get the other thing running again. Well, well said, sir. Well said. So we're about to talk about perhaps a very positive topic here now. Pittsburgh's 2023, I should say 2022-2023 men's basketball season. It went it went pretty well by all accounts, and it looks like Jeff Capel has been able to uh, to uh, use the transfer portal well. The floor- uh, you know, this was probably the most fun watching Pitt basketball in nearly a decade. And I say that as someone who stand for Jamie Dixon as much as possible, even in the, at the last couple of years where it was a bit of a slog, but take a slog over Kevin Stallings any day that said, <laughs> uh, you know, it felt like, you know, for the last few years though, it's, it really did catch everyone by surprise because the last few years with Cape Jeff Capel, it's been one step forward and two steps back. And honestly, the way last season started, we were all fitting him for a coffin. I mean, the only question at the, after losing to VCU was, you know, whether they, you know, they were going to be firing him before the season ended. But I mean, that team just, it, everything came together. It clicked. I don't know how transfer portal chemistry just worked this time. I don't know if everyone was just really hungry and everyone bought in. But it wasn't just the transfer portal. It was the kids they brought in that, you know, the Diaz twins. You just, everything just seemed to click even when things were, even when things were, bad things were happening, like Ugly just not being able to play and eventually transferring out. Uh, you know, so all that just, just a lot of positive feelings. I mean, just something we haven't had for a long time with basketball. It was just, it was fun to watch again. And, you know, I'll be honest, though, you know, the questions aren't all gone because the one thing that has been an issue with under Jeff Capel has been the following year when things look good. When he came in at first, he brought in all, a lot of initial talent and there was more talent coming in, but nothing meshed the second year and things crumbled and you struggled from there. So we've got, you know, you've got talent returning. You've got Blake Hinson, who pulled his name out of the draft, coming back. And you've got a really good recruiting class coming in. So the question is going to be, how do they all come together? Do they integrate? Does it all work? And so that's, you know, so it's as great as last season was, and as much as, as many positive vibes, the questions aren't all gone quite yet. Definitely. You're looking for some consistency, and I understand exactly what you're talking about. Jeff, you're up, friend. All right. Thank you, Matthew. Uh Chaz, we turn our attention to football, and you know it's been a great, you know, couple of years of run for for Pittsburgh f- football. I think over the last three years, if I'm not mistaken, Pittsburgh's actually had the most draft picks into the NFL from the ACC. Um, 
So it's it's been it's been a really good run. And now looking ahead to next season, what are some of the major strengths coming back for Pittsburgh football? Uh, most of it is on the defensive side, uh, which shouldn't be too surprising. The where the most most talent coming back is going to be in the secondary. You've got uh, MJ Devonshire and Marquis Williams both coming back at the starting cornerback spots, and while the safety positions are gone, you know starters are gone. You've got a guy in O'Brien who's a junior and uh, McIntyre is a sophomore. They're both at the new safeties, but they were getting in the rotation. They look, they look like they're ready to step right in. And in addition, the point is there's depth there. Uh, they've got A.J. Woods as the third corner who was experienced in back there. You've got a kid named Rashad Battle who should be stepping in to fight actually to get more playing time at corner. And you've got a transfer from Florida who – lived in the pit who's from the Pittsburgh area and Donovan McMillan who was a four star when he was recruited to Florida. He can he transferred into Pitt this year. He's gonna definitely work his way in the rotation for sure. Uh otherwise, you know, the the spots where there's actually a lot coming back are places where they lost a lot, both the offensive and defensive lines. You had a lot of seniors graduating seniors on the defensive line. Obviously you had Kalaja Kansi you had Servasier Dennis on linebacker. You had those guys. You had Carter Warren over on the offensive line and a couple other guys. Just I'm rattling off the names of the guys who were drafted. But there was a lot of you know depth there and just experience. But then you look at who's coming in to step who's stepping in at both those lines. They're upperclassmen. The whole defensive line are nothing but juniors and seniors who have been in the rotation and are gonna be you know stepping in now as just the starters. And you just realize that that's where they, they you know, teams, teams, especially like an Arduzzi team, they win on the lines or die there. And when they've been good, the lines have been good. So that is probably where they're strongest right now. All right. Um, on the flip side, what are some of the major weaknesses? Um, in other words, what do you think the Panthers will be working on in August before the first game? You know, what are the questions that you think have to be resolved to have a successful season? Uh, you know, the obvious place is the passing game. It was a bit of a struggle at times last year, uh, you know, with, at the quarterback position, partially, you know, the quarterback himself and his injuries. But in this year, of obviously, there's a new quarterback, a transfer again, Phil Jakovic, coming over from Boston College, previously of Notre Dame, also another kid who grew up in the Pittsburgh area and came back home at the end. Uh, but there's also real questions about Pitt's receiving core. The uh, most consistent and reliable receiver last year was Jared Wayne, who has moved on, who's graduated. And you had a problem last year where you thought, we thought, Gavin Bartholomew, a tight end, was going to be, you know, going to be all ACC, at the very least one of the top tight ends. He got hurt early, and there never was any rhythm with him in the offensive flow. Uh, and the wide receivers outside of Wayne struggled with consistency. You had a couple transfers in, in uh, Bub Means and Kanata Mumfield. Uh, Means definitely came on near the end of the season. So the question for, especially there, is does Bob, Bob Means keep that going? Is he going to step up a little further? Uh, and after, and then there's Mumfield should be a solid, reliable, you know, back uh, receiver, but he's not, you know, he's not going to be a deep threat. So there's 
lot of questions. Who's going to make, make be making the big plays on in the uh, receiving core? Uh, the other spot is also on offense at running back. Uh, you got Izzy Abbott. Yeah, Izzy. We'll just go with Izzy. Um, it's been a long day. Izzy uh, at running back, you know, was such a force last year for Pitt, uh, especially any Virginia Tech fan can tell you that, right? But he, uh, before the, uh, Rodney Hammond is the guy who's going to be the starting running back this year. And he was, at the start of the season, going to basically be sharing the load with Izzy. But he got hurt in the first game against West Virginia. And that's when Izzy stepped in and took basically took the uh, running back position over completely. Uh, Hammond showed what he can do again back at the bowl game against UCLA, and he's going to be the starter for sure. But the question is who's going to be number two? And, of course, with running backs, his injury is always a question. So there, that's where the questions are, you know. All right, Chaz, uh, who are some of the new recruits or players uh, from the transfer portal that uh, you are the you are the most impressed with? And are there any that you think will get some major playing time right away? Uh, well, obviously, uh, Phil Dracovic is going to be the is is easy and probably the correct answer. Uh, he's you know his, his the end of his run at Boston College was not good for him. He took a beating there. But he's coming, coming to Pitt. He's reuniting with Frank Signetti at the the offense coordinator, who he had great success in the one one year at Boston College. But you know, here's the thing, and this is a bit of a pet theory of mine. He he had over those two years at Boston College, just had the ever living snot beaten out of him because of BC's O line. He took a beating. And it showed, especially last year, which was when the O-line was really, really bad, that it just messed with his mechanics. He couldn't stay. He wasn't comfortable in the pocket at all, even if there was protection. He was moving around too much. And that's something, I don't know, again, it's a pet theory of mine that uh, good quarterbacks, if they don't have a good O-line behind them in college, it takes them a long while before they get over that. I, you know, I'll, I'll harken back to Sam Howell at UNC, who looked so good for a couple years. And then his last season at UNC, when the O-line was just kept letting him down and he was constantly under pressure and taking beatings, you could see his mechanics slipping. You could see his footwork getting worse because he just didn't feel comfortable back there and knew he was going to get take hits. So that's the thing, you know, I worry about this year, you know, Dracovic's going to be the, the main focus. It's quarterback. Every in the in, in football, college, pro, whatever, it's quarterbacks now. And so Dracovic is the key one way or the other on the offense. Uh, but that's what's interesting is Pitt took one other transfer quarterback, uh, Christian Villet. Yeah, Villot. Villot, Villet. I still don't have that one down. Uh, he came from Penn State. He was a four-star recruit as, uh, when he came at to Penn State, and he looked really sharp as well during the spring game, like really strong-armed and just crisp throws. In the So, you know, if Dracovic takes hits, if he gets hurt again, I really feel good about where Pitt is with the quarterback position that Velo could really step in there and make it an impact. Uh, Recruiting-wise, you know, just as opposed to transfers, 
the openings are at the wide receiver spot, as I mentioned, as a weakness, because there's just, it's thin there. The depth is not there at the moment. So Lamar Seymour or Kenny Johnson seem to be the kids that most likely have the most chance to get in there and make an early impact. You know, it's kind of strange. It's kind of the thing with Pitt because they're so big on developing the players. There's no, you know, you're not going to see a lot of freshmen get in there right away to make an impact because they redshirt as much as possible. And if they do get in, they're in a rotation, not, busting through his starters unless they're absolute talents, which, you know, they're not that Pitt does not have just sheer athleticism, five-star talent. They don't have that. So they're, you're not going to see a lot of that right away. All right, Chaz. Um, as we move along here in the podcast, uh, what are the two most important games uh, for Pittsburgh this year, and if, give us your feeling, analyze those games for us, and then give us your uh, overall record of, of what do you think Pittsburgh will have this season? All right. Uh, yeah, there's, you know, there's a few, there's three games. Honestly, I, I'm cheating because I know you said two most important, but I'm going to go with one non-con and two of the uh, ACC games because they're kind of different. The most important game is obviously West Virginia. It's the backyard brawl. It's the most, it's the game that matters. It's, it's a rivalry game. It's the most fun. I can't tell you how much fun it was to have the backyard brawl last year, back last year, the season opener, the tailgate. It was just a joy. It's, it's so much fun to have good, pure hate for the opponent and just, and no, you know, you knew people, you saw people that you've known because in Pittsburgh, it's everyone, you know, there, there are plenty of West Virginia fans. There are people that, you know, went to school there, people that moved up there and it's just good hate. It's, you know, I know that, you know, good, clean hate is a different rivalry game, but the, and the backyard brawl has that right now because there was such an energy, both, te- both fan bases so wanted that game and, it was everything we wanted, obviously for Pitt fan a little more, but that's going to be the most important one. And yes, Neil Brown is on the probably on the hottest seat in the in you know power conferences, and they have lost way too many transfers already this past season when they were already on thin on talent, and they are probably going to be picked to be last in the Big Twelve. But again, this is the backyard brawl, so none of that matters. <laughs> it's just gonna be a lot of hitting and a lot of people going at each other i i really just can't wait for that one uh but moving on to you know the other games are most important oddly enough they really are probably north carolina games uh i'm gonna go probably go with unc and at duke though you know that that the, the duke one could be could ultimately be different. I could swap out Wake Forest, the at Wake Forest. Uh, those are probably the two biggest games because those are going to be the two games, most important games, really, that have an impact on how Pitt fares in the ACC. Those UNC and Duke are opposite poles for Pitt. They're both games that really have, over the since Pitt joined the ACC, have been 
weird games. UNC games almost always go UNC's way, game way, and Duke games almost always go Pitt's way. And but they're always inevitably weird, and something strange keeps happening in them. And so that's those are the two. I think the thing about UNC that has tripped up Pitt, especially with uh, Narduzzi. Narduzzi goes straight at it, wants to go straight at a team every time. And so you're putting talent against talent. And while UNC is always wildly inconsistent and completely unpredictable in that, they always have a lot of talent. You always look at that team and go, why aren't they better? What, you know, No matter who the head coach is so far, it's been, why aren't they better from game to game? And I think that's what's tripped Pitt up against UNC is they just have the talent. And when they go straight at each other, the talent wins. By the same token, against Duke, that's kind of what happens for Pitt. I mean, Duke gives Pitt fits at times. It's their wild games that swing, but in the end, Pitt keeps winning. But it's talent against talent. And the only reason why I said I might switch out Wake Forest for Duke is I have no idea if Duke is going to repeat under Mike Alco this year, the same level of just sheer, you know, not just competence, but just overachieving. And it was impressive as hell what they did last year. It's, but they still have to get the talent up and they've done a good job so far, but I don't know what to expect honestly from them. And Wake Forest obviously has lost talent, but again, you've got Clawson coaching them who has kept them at a level, a higher level. So, again, it's going to be the North Carolina games that matter most this year for Pitt in the ACC. As far now, you were asking about the whole season. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> that the, the schedule game is always fun. <laughs> and it's, it feels like this feels like an op, in a good optimism way, you know, Three and one in the non-conference schedule, you know, where you count uh, Notre Dame as non-con. I like Pitt's chances to, you know, beat West Virginia and Cincinnati. I, and then, of course, they better beat Wofford, for God's sake. And in the ACC play, you know, I don't – obviously, I do not feel good about their chances against Florida State. Florida State looks loaded. There's no reason Florida State shouldn't beat a lot of teams in the ACC. And if you're going to sheer talent, yeah, I'm going to have to say, yeah, Florida State's got the best chance. I like Pitt to go, I like Pitt to go at least six, a good six and two in the ACC. So about a nine and three season. All right. That sounds good. Um, Matthew, I'm going to turn it over to you now for the last couple questions in the podcast. So Chaz, nine and three, I mean, I think for the most part, a lot of Pittsburgh fans would be pretty happy with that because that's a, a level of consistency that I think is pretty decent. It means that Pittsburgh would be winning the games that they're probably supposed to win and maybe losing against some of the some of the heavyweights. And that seems to you know, for the most part over the last couple of years been the trend with Pittsburgh. There may have been one here or there that Pittsburgh wished they could have had been back, but it but there's been a level of consistency that we've seen in the program now. So towards that end, give us the stat, state of Pittsburgh football 
know, what are your bloggers and fans thinking right now regarding the status of the program? Well, I think you just uh, hit the primary thing is that Pitt is winning most of the games it should. And yes, they're losing the game, some of the games they probably should too, for the most part. And that's one of the big, big things that's happened to Pitt and Narduzzi is that he's, you know, he's essentially raised the floor and the ceiling on the program. It's not dramatic. It's not, you know, going from, you know, four or five game, diff- three, even three game difference, but it's been steady. When Narduzzi took over, you know, nine nine years ago, it was a six and six program. You knew the you know the floor was probably about you know the the floor was on at you know six six five and seven, and you know, and now it feels like a bad season would be a seven and five year, and on average, it you know an average season would be eight and four you know, where you'd go five and three in the ACC type season, and that's you know. It's not dramatic, but he's steadily raised it over the years because that's, you know, that's who Narduzzi is as a coach. He is going to just, he's going to install a start with a base level. You look at what he did, you know, when he was, you know, his mentor, uh, Mark D'Antonio, was steady, raised the level of the floor, whether it was at Cincinnati and Michigan State, get it a little better and just keep improving it till you start breaking through. So that's where Pitt is right now. Uh, you know, Narduzzi is now the fourth longest tenured ACC coach. You know, there's Sweeney, Doreen, and Clawson, you know, just ahead of him. And overall in the ACC, in, in you know, in the power conferences, he's, you know, he's, he's tied for 11th in tenure. You know, Jim Harbaugh is, the, is with them. And because those are the only two coaches, kind of funny, I looked it up. They're the only two coaches from that hiring cycle still employed in the power at the power conference level uh, from that cycle. But as for the state of Pitt fans, and you know, it's feeling pretty good. I mean, part of it is you caught us at the right time because this is June, and this is the big month for recruiting. And the last two weekends, Pitt has piled up recruits. Uh, unofficially, there are like twenty recruits now committed. Pitt knows about the. They've known about 17 of them at this point that have announced, who've announced their commitment. Three or three or so are not admitted. By the way, congrats to the Hokies on getting Gabriel over against, you know, to commit this weekend instead of Pitt. A little bummed about that, but, you know, it happens. But, you know, the quality is ticking, you know, they've got quantity and the quality is ticking up on there. There's still, you know, most of the kids that they've gotten for recruiting are still three stars, but they're much, they're higher three stars when you look at their numbers. They're just below a four star ranking. And so the talent is improving. It's, you know, again, part of, again, the same thing, steady improvement. And that's just, you know, something we haven't seen a consistent improvement, getting a little better each year. So, you know, it may not always reflect in the record, but it has in the last few years, you know, but it, it's been getting better. And it's just the consistency is there, which is just given, you know, a, a really, you know, good feeling. You know, with that said, like a lot of places, you know, Pitt is one really stupid loss from the fans just turning on a dime again. <laughs> That's a fair point. That's a fair point. As we close the podcast, it's open microphone time. What do you got for us, Chad? The floor is yours. All right. I'm going to ask you guys a couple questions as I do this. Uh, how much do you remember about Miami when they moved from the Big East to the ACC? 
Uh, go, go ahead, Jeff. Uh, I guess it d- depends on uh, w- what you're going to ask, uh, but I definitely <laughs> remember when the move was was made and then some specifics around it. Okay. Uh, the reason why I, because obviously there are two main subjects right now for college football fans to discuss. It's NIL or it's conference realignment. And I'm bringing up conference realignment because part of it is goes back to how I started blogging. You know, I was doing general blogging, you know, about a lot of other things when Pitt and, you know, the Big East was being raided by the ACC. And that kind of changed my focus, and my interest. And I realized I just wanted to talk about, you know, Pitt and just talk about sports more. But when the ACC came calling for Miami, that was 2003, and they moved in 2004. You know, the ACC obviously wanted Miami because it was time they needed to upgrade the football. You all at that point, you know, you know, Mac Brown had long left, had left a few years before to go to Texas. Clemson was Clemsoning at that time because they were led by Bowden. Florida State was starting to fall, and Miami, you know, was the one they wanted. But why? But the question you have to stop and think about is the is partially just how dumb things were at the time, because who did Miami want to come with them to the ACC? When they moved to the ACC, they wanted to keep bring Northeast schools. They wanted because because that's where their alumni base was very strong. Because and so they wanted to have keep the ties there. They wanted to get the donor money, not just for football, especially not for football. They just wanted it for the school as much as anything else. So when the ACC was calling, the teams they wanted, they were going to take was were Miami, Boston College, and Syracuse. And it, you know, now you know we we kind of laugh about we make jokes about Boston College, especially, you know, in the ACC. But those were the teams that they wanted. They wanted to take three private schools right away. You know, Miami and Syracuse are decently sized private schools. My and and then Boston College, who's you know, not. But ultimately, you know, obviously, you know that you may remember that what kept Boston College at least and Syracuse out completely, and Boston College delayed initially for a while, for a year were the lawsuits, the threats, and the Virginia legislature actually having enough juice to force, you know, Virginia to back Virginia Tech to go, and the ACC saying, we've just got to get somebody. So that first move to expand the ACC, you know, beyond Florida, you know, Florida State was the other move a decade back, but the first big move to expand the ACC to a larger conference number was almost even worse than it could have been if not for you know political ploys which now seem quaint because you know you you saw even five years later when you know the legislate when the pac-12 or pac-10 was going to raid the big 12 and take texas and texas a&m and oklahoma and oklahoma state because the legislatures weren't going to let you know the you know the schools from texas be separated or the schools from oklahoma be separated now no one cares. You, know, you see, Oklahoma and Texas have gone to the SEC because that's where they go, and all. And the worst that happens is they get a scolding in front of the state legislature. See, you know where I, but, you know where I thought you were going with this, Chaz. I thought you were going with the. I thought you were going to go down the road here where you said, 
you know, that John Swafford expected Miami and Florida State to be in the title game every year. And Miami has barely won one side of the coastal when the division, you know, one coastal title when the divisions were intact. That's where I thought you were going with this. Well, we all we all know that's what they thought. All all everyone thought that was the whole thing. That's why they put them in separate divisions. It, you know, it was that's the way they thought it was going to go. That that both that Miami collapsed completely upon moving to the ACC was just a is just still funny to me. But, you know, and Florida State obviously hit their fallow period. But, you know, bringing that up, just think about this, about how good Big East football could have actually been if this hadn't happened. Not just, not, and forget Miami, think about Virginia Tech and Boston College back then. Virginia, you know, Boston College, you know, was, that was the Matt Ryan time in the, in the 2000, early 2000s. You know, Virginia Tech was strong. You had West Virginia just rolling you even had you know louisville pick you know came in and was just picked things up hell rutgers in cincinnati by the you know by the end of the decade the big east football could have actually been something would have could have actually been amazing in a weird way but you know that's just a different thing but i'm just i'm just trying to think about the i, I guess I'm trying to look at the broad scope of uh, conference realignment, especially for the ACC, which has constantly shot itself in the foot, whether intentionally or not. And it's almost, it is kind of funny and for, and frustrating, obviously, because, you know, this is an ACC podcast. We're all fans of ACC teams, and we're all struggling to cope with this whole thing where we're we're, we're just we want to make sure our programs do well and survive as much as it more than anything else it's not we don't want to pretend otherwise but you go back to then you go to 2013 when you know Pitt and Syracuse finally got called to the ACC or you know whatever you want to look at that and you know that because the reason was they were put you know the ACC wanted more media markets they were pushing for it because that was what, what did they want at the time? They wanted their own TV channel, like, you know, like Big Ten had, which had finally sh- had shown after years of jokes of Rotel and Barbasol's commercial jokes, was making a lot of money. And the SEC was announcing that they were going to get their own network. And so the most important thing for the ACC was to get a TV deal too, get their own TV network. And that's, you know, which led eventually to the whole, 2016 grant of rights issue and the ACC network. That was the point where they had to get that network. That was so important to everybody, not just, you know, not just the fans. It was important to the school presidents, the ADs, everyone's demanding that. And there are consequences to it because they made the trade off in years. And it's just, there's a, it's just very interesting to, I guess it just fascinates me. How much things have changed, how much there was a misunderstanding of the markets. That even though you want the networks, you want the over the air thing, that's not where it is now. Now it's about you just simply want the brands. It's changed again. When the when the Big Ten expanded to get take Rutgers and Maryland, it was to get markets. Now if the, now they expanded to get you know UCLA and USC, it's to get brands. It's the same reason they took Oklahoma. It was a brand. And so we're looking for conference realignment, you know, in the future. 
however that's going to go. And it's only about brand. It's about saying the brand names, which there's something about markets. Sure. But it's about the brand. They, someone wants the North Carolina market. No, they want the brand. They want UNC. They want Miami is still a brand name. Probably. I, you know, Clemson has turned themselves into a brand, but at the same time, it won't, would not take much. And I say this as a pit band who saw what happened to pit in the eighties to, you know, to the nineties and saw how quickly things can turn no matter how much you don't want them to their brand for now, but how much does it take to not become a brand? So I, I mean, just, I wonder how you guys feel about this right now. Jeff, I'm going to give you the floor here because you have talked and written a lot about this. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of moving moving parts to this, Chaz, that's for sure. Um, I, I think there's a couple there's a couple things that, that I really believe are 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 true. And um one of them is that I don't think or ESPN is not going to orchestrate the demise of the ACC, uh, not in the next five years. And that's something that Matthew and I have talked a, a bunch of about. Um, I don't, you're not going to see the ACC dissolve this. There's not going to be like nine teams voting to break up the conference in the next two years. I mean, all, all of that, it's, it's really, in my opinion, a, a lot of nonsense and how it got started. We're just, you know, t- Twitter accounts who, who don't really follow this very close or just kind of wishful, uh, wishful thinking. But th- there's one big difference between the ACC and, in particular and the Pac-12 and and the Big 12 is that ACC network that you talked about. Mm-hmm. And, and, and every, I think everyone can agree that, that the base media deal is, is kind of, it's a mess. I mean, it's, it's definitely undervalued. It's really long. Um, you know, they're trying to figure out ways, can they need to negotiate it? But the ACC network itself is usually successful. And it's not just successful for the ACC, it's successful for ESPN. Um, the, the amount that the conference was paid out for the ACC network per team, uh, I, I've seen it anywhere like eight, nine million dollars per team. And that was before the numbers of Comcast are fully fully in there for the physical year, what, 21, 22. It's going to be 10, 11 million dollars next year. Um, so you can kind of get the idea if each ACC school is making $10 million, it's 15 schools, the other half goes to ESPN, that's $150 million, uh, somewhere in the neighborhood that ESPN is making off of this. And on that, the ACC is definitely on par with the big 10 and the SEC, not with the whole deal, that's for sure, but with the ACC network. And that's why I've, ESPN is not going to orchestrate the demise of their own entity that they own half of and makes that much money. They're already ha- having layoffs and hemorrhaging money. They're not going to just blow it up so a couple teams can move to the SEC. And it's it's really ridiculous some of the stuff that's been thrown around. They're going to make deals with the um, with Fox so that a couple teams could move to Fox. No, you're not you're not you're not going to sell some of your biggest brands to 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 Fox and that 
because Fox is also, you know, it's not a good time for these networks to start to keep spending money. They've already made it clear that the SEC, that they didn't want to pay the SEC for an extra conference game, at least not right now. So I don't, I, I think it's really premature that they think that, and you mentioned the grant of rights, that all of this is going to happen in the next two or three years. I'm, I'm firmly in the camp that you're not going to really see anything for at least five years regarding the ACC and probably closer to the end of the decade and maybe all the way to the end of the grant of rights in 2036. It's kind of hard to see that far into the future, but you, you have time in the ACC um, to try to resolve some of these issues. And you're not going to close the gap all the way with, with the big two. Um, but, you know, these incremental increases, you get a couple million more from from the network, maybe three or four or five million more, because it's also in ESPN's best interest. And that's where you can maybe make some some money up. You've got the unequal revenue sharing. So 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 for me, I look at it like I don't see anything happening for several years regarding the the ACC uh, beyond that. You know, let's see what what Jim Phillips can come up with. We've always said, or I've always thought too, you know, he's got the gift of some time. Maybe he inherited a bad deal, um, but he's getting paid, you know, over two million dollars a year to try to figure this out, and he's gonna he's gonna have time. I, I don't believe you you're gonna see any movement in the short term. It it just doesn't make sense to me. Oh, absolutely. I, um... Yeah, there is no short-term fix here because, I mean, just economically, why would ESPN let any let a team from the ACC go to the SEC and have to up what they pay? Right. There's, <laughs> there's no incentive for the ACC for ESPN to do that. And as for the grant of rights, I think it was Dennis Dodd a few weeks ago that had an article about you know the grant of rights thing, which was just like. No one's broken it. And there's a good reason for that because it's a very simple contract clause. And there's nothing you can do about it. Oklahoma and Texas, for God's sake, who has so much money, they couldn't bring themselves to fight it in court or, and, or break it early because they knew what, what it was. So, yeah, I don't, nothing's going to happen at all there in, in that front. It's going to be several years. It's going to go into 20. It's going to, you're just, every year we're going to hear Florida State especially, and, you know, Clemson as well, just whine about it, see what they can get, if they can get, a, you know, little penny any stuff here and there, but they're not going to get anything. They're going to make noises, and all they're doing is signaling to the SEC and Big Ten, hey, when you're ready for, when, you, when we can break, we're, we're ready to go, which they already know. And... The thing is, we don't know where the market's going to be in 10 years. We don't know how it's going because things keep changing. I mean, like I said, the ACC seems to be almost a history of short-sighted moves. Why did Florida State come to the ACC? Because they wanted to win a national championship and they felt the path was easier than going into the SEC at the time. Why did the ACC want Miami? Because, hey, there's a power and we can just pluck them and it'll make things better. We don't care about the little side pieces of Boston College and at the time Syracuse. We'll just do it. They just 
there's a bunch of short-sighted moves on all parties, not just the conference, but the schools themselves that keep that lead to these things. And it, it just, when you look at the broad scope of it, it's annoying in a way, and it's funny as hell. Jeff, you're up, friend. You're open microphone time. <laughs> Yeah, just to follow what what Chad says, I I totally agree. The ACC definitely has a reputation of being reactive and and short sighted, and that goes back years. I mean, they had an opportunity in 08, 09 to have their own network, but they vote the ACC presidents voted against it, and that was kind of a combination thing. They voted against it, and and you know Jim Swafford or John Swafford was not the, you know, visionary Jim Delaney was who, who really wanted a network for the big 10. I mean, think at that time when the deals were like nine, $10 million a team, instead of like what the numbers are now, that extra three or $4 million at that time, what difference could that have made? Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll see what Jim Phillips can come up with you know, to be on the more proactive side. And then what I was going to add for my open mic is something to keep an eye on over the next couple of weeks is that there seems to be a kind of a growing buzz in the background that there could be something in the works between the ACC and, and PAC 12, um, maybe a scheduling agreement, maybe some kind of synergies with, with the PAC 12 network and the ACC network, who knows? Um, but none of this can really move forward until the Pac-12 gets their media deal signed. And that's that's what everybody's looking at, because it, if they don't get it done, it could set off like a complete domino effect of, of those teams being split apart, moved. Maybe the ACC can look to pick up a couple of teams over there. I would prefer to see the Pac-12 stay intact. Um, cause I think it's better for, for college uh, athletics. I think they will get that media deal done. But that's that's the thing to watch over the next two to three weeks, because uh, I think there will be resolution for the Pac-12 one way or another before before July 4th. And I think they'll I think they'll get a deal done. And I think there's a chance you could see something between the ACC uh, and the Pac-12 because officials from both sides. This was talked about last year, but it seems that there's still some discussions going on in the you know, on in the background, but they can't really move forward until that deal's done. So we'll, that's something to keep an eye on for everybody. Hey, can I ask a quick, jump in with a quick question? Because this is just one of those little things that's nagged in the back of my head, Jeff. And I'm going to, let's say ESPN cuts a deal with the Pac-12. They cut the deal. What do you think it would take for the ACC to share the ACC network with the Pac-12? Say that they say, let's do this. The Pac-12 network kind of folds in with the ACC, and you're, you know, the ACC is most of the, is the is day evening, and then it's Pac-12 after dark type thing, you know, with all the content for both things, because the ACC, unlike the ACC network, unlike the SEC and Big Ten network, don't really have a ton of studio show stuff, and I don't think they're going to be developing a ton of studio show stuff. Studio show stuff. Yeesh. Say that one a few times fast. But if they actually added more programming of actual sporting events between the Pac-12, you know, you know, Olympic athletics and 
ACC Olympic athletics, you would have a network that's loaded with product. Would, I mean, would the ACC consent to that? Say if they get another extra, say, 10 million a year for it. I, I, I think so. I think the ACC schools are, are in a position that anything that would give them an increase, especially something that much, that they would, um, you know, they'd give up some of that coverage of the ACC network to be um, with the PAC, PAC-12 network. I, I do. I think they would. And it, and it can look a lot of different ways, too. Um, the way the PAC-12 network was set up was they had different channels for each of the schools. Right. I mean, maybe they could have some kind of hybrid thing, but, um, well, can I, let me just... honestly, any, any, anything that made $10 million for the schools per year, I, I think they'd go for just about anything that did that. Well, I can, yeah, add, just... let me add something here too. I mean, because you can also have this where you're in a situation where you're broadcasting on multiple channels, like mm-hmm. perhaps showing content on ESPNU, where you're sharing 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 a couple of net, a couple of networks for that type of thing that you're talking about. Yeah, like I said, it's just it's just something that's been in the back of my mind because they're folding out the Longhorn network example, you know, getting rid of the Longhorn network, but I'm not sure what they're doing with it exactly, but obviously they're getting rid of it because Texas is going to the SEC and they have to get rid of it. And they're just ESPN has the power to move things around and it just seems like that could it and again, it's just pure spitballing thing. What could they do? How could this work for the ACC? How could they make something happen with the Pac-12? Because while they don't necessarily need the content of the Pac-12 per se, they kind of like having it and they like to make sure no one else has it. And this gives them a place to park it. Yeah, I don't think it's out of... I don't think it's out of the question. Once that deal is signed, I think you have the opportunity to open things up. And I think ESPN, you know, if they do their evaluations, if it makes them money, makes the ACC money, I think anything is on the on the table. Mm-hmm. All right. I do, like I said, just things that are just coming into my head, maybe a little too much bourbon. Who can say? This is cool. Hey, man, this is cool. Jeff, did you have anything else that you wanted to add for your open mic? I know we talked briefly about the College World Series. It's, it seems to be turning out pretty well for Wake Forest. And for- Yeah, yeah, we hit that at the beginning of the podcast. They'll be getting going in Omaha at the end of the week, and, and those are two legit national title contenders especially i mean virginia definitely has a shot at it but wake forest um i mean they they're playing like the best team in the country uh i mean they just wiped out alabama this weekend and the week before they they just completely obliterated maryland and in their region um when wake forest had them in their region that was the big tens uh best or second best team and i mean they're just they got pitching they got power hitting i mean they have it all right now um so two really good teams, two really good representatives from the ACC are going to be in Omaha next week. Chaz, I got a question for you. Here's my, I'm going to use my, Absolutely. I'm going to use my open mic to ask you a question. What do you think of that PGA golf live tour merger? I'm talking about the Saudi. <laughs> uh, well, that is where money wins as always. 
Uh, you know, I think well, I've seen a few. I've read the analysis. I've read everything. It really just comes down to this: the Saudi, you know, private investment fund, public investment fund. It's public, not private. Public investment fund just has that much more money. So usually they can name a price and you eventually say, I can't turn that down, which is how they got so many golfers for live. But in the case of, you know, the PGA, it's, we can just keep litigating the shit out of this. Sorry about the language. Uh, we can just keep the litigation going. We can delay, we can keep discovery, you know, going. We can just keep this in court. I don't know how the PGA has already spent $50 million on legal fees. If that, you know, based on what the reports are saying, but if they've done, if they've waste blown that much money already, yeah, they had no chance. Uh, I honestly do not see how, uh, you know, Mon Jay Monahan stays in charge of even in as a figurehead of the PGA after this. I mean, you can only take so many bullets for the shield of any, organization because there's just so much that he can't handle i mean just by the public relations he's done that he's he's going to be there for maybe a year before they just get rid of him and bring someone else in to try and you know clean this clean the appearance up a little more i'm not a golfer i enjoyed golf my grandfather tried desperately to get me to love golf or play golf and boy did that go badly and so I can watch it and enjoy it, but it's not something that I care deeply about. So I'm not too emotionally invested in this other than just for the, for the car crashes. I get it. I get it. My biggest concern is, and I was telling Jeff about this earlier that like, so the, Basically, it's the it's the Saudi Royal Kingdom's public funds, right? That are private royal investment funds. They aren't subject to, to public financial statements. That sort of thing. So you really don't know where the color of the money is that's coming in. And so if you're approving this merger and you're sitting here in the United States, there better be requirements for a U.S. based U.S. based company with with public financial statements so you know what that what kind of the money what kind of money is driving the show and that was kind of my biggest concern i don't think you're ever quite going to get that there are enough there are enough accounting firms that can obscure the hell out of this uh the best thing that can happen is that the pga loses their 501c3 status so that it's you know not a tax deduction on top of it all that would be the only good thing i could see out of it if that happens otherwise yeah no you'll we'll never see the where the money's coming from other than we just assume it's oil technically <laughs> i think of dark money but that's that's all i'm gonna say here and maybe that's maybe that's what it is. you know we talk about dark money and talking about oil but i mean that's a topic for <laughs> a topic for another day jazz Thank you so much for joining us on the All Sports Discussion ACC podcast. We loved having you come on the show, talk about Pittsburgh football and men's basketball. We'd love to have you come on some other time. Thanks so much, friend. Always enjoyable. Thanks, guys. Take care.